Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Well, keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight, here's my panel. We've got former advisor to Boris Johnson and now Conservative life payer Lord Moylan, journalist and broadcaster Nabila Ramdani and Alistair Donald, who's the Associate Director at the Academy of Ideas. Good afternoon at you three. Good afternoon. Good, Good evening. Afternoon. What do we say now? It's about almost evening time, isn't it? Daniel, I always say the same thing to you. Uh, whenever the news headlines are on, I'm going to try and create some kind of spin-off show because you are hilarious. I just love your commentary on all of the news headlines. I wish you could hear him, uh, ladies and gentlemen. He's very funny. He does. He's just kind of muttering away, criticising this person, uh, criticising that story. I love it. Uh, anyway, you know the drill on Jubes and Co, don't you? It's not just about us here and our thoughts. It's about you at home as well. What's on your mind tonight? You can get in touch with me on email, gbviews at gbnews.com. UK. You can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at GB News. Don't forget, if you haven't already, you can subscribe to us on YouTube. Uh, you might even be watching us there right now if you are. Good evening to you. You can listen to us, ladies and gentlemen, on the radio. DAB Plus, you see, we're all high tech, we're swanky, we're pretty much everywhere. So good evening to you, wherever you are watching or listening tonight. You are very, very welcome. Now, on Monday, the World Health Organization meets in Switzerland to discuss what some are saying might end up as a legal framework for how different countries in the world deal with a pandemic. Lots of people are quite anxious about all of this. Stop the treaty uh, has been trending, for example, on social media. Lots of people are saying, whoa there. This is apparently the first step in us, the UK, handing over our sovereign rights in terms of determining uh, how we'll, we deal with a pandemic to the World Health Organization. Well, joining me now is Dr. Will Jones from The Daily Skeptic. He's been writing about this. Good evening to you. Uh, let me start by asking you, just give the viewers a summary, if you will, a brief summary on what's happening at the moment. So... Uh, the, the World Health Assembly, which is the governing body of the World Health Organization, is meeting next week, um, as you said, in Geneva. And uh, at that meeting, they're going to discuss uh, what they need to do next to take forward this agenda for... Uh, the, the Director General is calling it a, a, a pandemic accord. Um, they seem to have backed off a little bit from the language of treaty. They talk about an instrument as well. So it's not entirely clear at the moment what exactly it's going to have in it, look like, what it's going to be. Uh, but there de there's definitely an agenda to take something forward to have stronger uh, pandemic preparedness and response at an international level. And so there's a... Uh, there was a, so the governments have been calling for this. Uh, last uh, last December, a survey was sent out uh, by the World Health Organization to uh, to all the member states and stakeholders, um, and uh, to ask them their views on 131 recommendations. Yes, 131 um, that had been made by various committees of the of the World Health Organization, various member states, um, and they've had feedback from that. A, a report uh, from the working group has been has has. Put forward their views on that, and that is going, and that is, the, and it's that document, the world, the uh, the working group's report on the 131 recommendations that's going to the uh, the World Health Assembly next week. 
And where do you stand on this? Because there are an awful lot of people concerned. In fact, uh, there's a petition running as we speak with 136,717 uh, signatures, to be precise, as it stands right now, saying um, we do not sign, it's addressed to the government, obviously, do not sign any uh, World Health Organization pandemic treaty unless it is approved via public referendum. Do you think people have got a point here? Because there's a real concern at the moment that uh, the kind of un- uh, unelected uh, WHO will start trying to dictate to sovereign countries like the UK, you know, this is what you're going to be doing. So if the fact that can we leave our house or not within lockdown, uh, vaccine policies, mandation of vaccines, all that kind of stuff potentially will be coming from the WHO. People are concerned about that. Are they right? Uh, Sajid Javid said yesterday that uh, put our statements making clear that the UK does not intend um, in any way to compromise its sovereignty um, and other countries have said uh, similar and uh, my view is that it's most unlikely that a new treaty or instrument or accord will in that way in that ex that, that direct way impinge on a, on a state's right to to decide for itself its its response however and this is the big however, uh, there is uh, the World Health Organization will be um, and the plan is to str greatly strengthen the international framework uh, to have far more people employed working there, more surveillance, uh, more joined up, uh, more joined up working. Um, and more, uh, there's, there's, there's a plan to set up a, a compliance committee to look at what states are doing and to, to give to, to dictate to them uh, what how they should how they should how they should change. Now that, that those that won't that won't be binding on them. But uh, it will clearly that will create a strong pressure if the World Health Organization starts starts telling them what they should what they should have. And also, there's a huge amount more funding uh, that's being uh, proposed, and that funding will be is proposed to be tied to the compliance. So, um, and I'm going to bring my panel in uh, in just a second. But just before I do that, I mean, some of the reading up that I've been doing on this, and I, is to I do need to be clear that you know we're all a little bit in the dark at the moment. But nonetheless, uh, there's a lot of kind of stuff online that's available. To to, to read in terms of sentiments. Lots of articles have been written from places like the BMJ and a variety of different sources. Um, and I think that there are concerns, uh, certainly around people, and I've just mentioned that uh, petition there, that, for example, this is going to be a legally binding framework. Uh, good behaviour will be kind of rewarded. Bad behaviour will be sanctioned, etc. It, it is all alarming. It alarms me. Daniel, does it alarm you? I'm, I'm deeply worried, and I think uh, Dr Jones has laid it out quite helpfully, but there are even deeper concerns. Uh, the first question is, why the World Health Organization at all? This is an organization that we can't trust. We know that it is excessively close to China, uh, and we know that it um, is also very close to um, Big Pharma. Um, it, it takes lots of money from foundations, which are connected to uh, various interests and so on. Um, and really it lost its credibility. So I, I would absolutely not want to put responsibility for future policy in the hands of the World Health Organization as it currently stands. That's the first thing. The second thing is its thinking is clearly moving in the direction welcomed by China that the right response to a pandemic is lockdown. Mm. Now, I actually think lockdown was, was a disaster. I think the government, uh, you know, when they made that choice, they didn't know quite what to do. I think it probably had, there was a case for doing it at the time, but I think we know from experience it was the wrong choice. And, uh, and any idea the World Health Organization could be shifting us in that direction um, is, is highly um, unwelcome. And, and the final thing is, 
that one of the things they're going to do is talk about prevention. Mm. Now, we don't know how this pandemic, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, started, uh, because China won't collaborate mm. in helping us find out. But one of the possibilities is it started out in a laboratory in Wuhan. And if it did start out in a laboratory in Wuhan, then that was almost certainly as a result of an internationally an international effort to try and prevent such viruses getting out into the public again. So why would you go back and say, we're going to have a policy on prevention when you still haven't worked out and been honest about whether prevention, trying to prevent it, was actually the problem in the first place? Indeed. You've got to know how to do prevention properly. If, if they did it wrong, we've got to know why. Nabila, when uh, Daniel was just talking then and he was saying about trusting the WHO, I saw your eyebrows shoot up. Why? <laughs> Well, first of all, I have to say that it's the number one duty of any government, national government, to save lives. And this is not exclusive from um, uh, global organisations like the World Health Organisation also stepping in, especially when we're dealing with global phenomenon like a global pandemic. So it's only right that we uh, get our act together globally and coordinate action to deal with such unprecedented uh, times as we've seen through to the, the pandemic. I think we used to think that um, issues were, um, you know, sp were specific to communities or geographical areas, but the global pandemic has shown that it's not like that. You know, we all have to deal with certain issues at, uh, at a certain time. And I think in principle, it is worth having an organisation like the WHO, uh, because wherever you are in the world, you have pretty much the same needs uh, nowadays. And we need a coordinated approach to deal with global problems. And if anything, the pandemic has shown all that. So you think so whether yeah, or not I leave my house should be dictated to, uh, dictated by the World Health Organization currently in Geneva? No, what I'm saying is, uh, first start, I'm saying the World Health Organization has flaws. Uh, it's not perfect and I'm not utopian, I'm not an idealist uh, per se, but I personally think it's unfair now to crow uh, about early failings with hindsight, which is a wonderful thing, as we know. We can easily now pontificate about the early failings and what we should have done and maybe avoid lockdowns and the rest of it, but nobody had a clue when the uh, pandemic broke out. Uh, and the development of all societies is in the end about trial and error. And the pandemic was a classic example of that. And now the WHO is trying to consolidate what's happened. And yes, there will always be criticism about, about management, especially because health issues are hugely political. And there I say pan-national organisations need, in my opinion, technocrats. Uh, that is to say, people using technology to solve global problems. And again, the difficulty is when people try to uh, use such organisations for political reasons. But I think we can try to deal with that with more scrutiny. And the great irony, of course, is that if um, the more democratic you become, in fact, uh, uh, with a, 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 an organisation like the World Health Organisation, then the more political it in fact becomes. So what you really need is the best um, uh, medics in the world, the best administrators to coordinate uh, policies. And no democracy. 
Mm. Heavily overseen by heavily no, no. overseen by funders like Bill Gates, for example, private funders. Let me just bring Alistair in. Alistair, where do you stand on some of this? Well, uh, obviously, having been through a major pandemic, it makes a lot of sense for researchers and experts to come together and review what's going on. Whether the WHO is the forum under which to do that uh, is questionable, and I share many of Daniel's concerns about the WHO, both in terms of the way it operates and also it's the political sensitivities and interactions around it over things like China as such. But I do tend to think that Will got the balance right in his introduction, uh, being a bit circumspect about uh, the extent to which this uh, involves, as Russell Brand said, the end of democracy. I think that stretches it too far. And there is a kind of uh, conspiratorial air in terms of the way that we see WHO just now, which I think energies and efforts might be better concentrated on looking at actually what's gone on in the UK over the last two years. Because when you talk about the influence of technocracy uh, and the lack of the public's involvement in decisions, that has been because Parliament has overridden many of the, uh, of the public's concerns and introduced lockdowns and so on and so forth. So I think there's, you know, as with all treaties, there's an element of pressure uh, that's exerted in terms of the way that a nation works. But also, I think it's fair to say that treaties are um, often put in place by global organisations full of technocratic experts, as you say, but many of those concerns are shared by our domestic politicians and treaties can be a convenient way of our domestic politicians implementing things that they already want to do, hiding behind the cover of a treaty. And I, I, I think we just need to kind of realise that it's not just the WHO, but there's a domestic set of concerns and considerations that we need to take into account. Yeah, and Paul's just emailed in saying, this all sounds like an excuse for the uh, conspiracy theorists to lose their rag again. Well, I tell you, Paul, I've got to admit, uh, it does sound a little bit suspicious to me, some of this, when you actually start digging into it. Uh, it does actually make me un uncomfortable. Uh, Bernard says on the email, we're only just getting away from one lot of idiotic leaders in the EU, his words, not mine. We don't want another load of idiotic so-called leaders telling us what to do. Again, Stuart says, I've got great difficulty adhering to what our politicians tell us, so I've got no chance at all of adhering to what someone else uh, says when they're coming. I think he means from the WHO. Um, let me just ask you this. I mentioned um, at the start about the petition. So lots of people are saying that actually, if you want to uh, enforce an international treaty from the WHO on us as a country in terms of the response to the pandemic will be governed, dictated to and managed by a third party, the WHO, we should have a referendum. Do you think we should? I think so. It's important for us to remember that we weren't forced to impose a lockdown um, or any of the three lockdowns that we've had that we uh, we chose to do that and that was and that was a popular uh, we I mean the government chose to do that and that was a popular policy so the risk of putting it to a I mean I'm all in favor of democracy and referendum uh, referendum but the uh, but the ri the risk is that that would that the, the the public would just would just uh, support this I think the, the, no no because the, they're two different things you wouldn't go to the referendum you wouldn't go to a referendum saying do you support lockdowns you'd go to the referendum saying uh, when it comes to a global pandemic Pandemic, do you want to be governed by the policy of the World Health Organization or do you want to be governed by the policy of the UK government? That would be the question. I think uh, the, the, uh, 
we could put that we could put it to the public, and I think that would be helpful. But really, we should just uh, not be. And the government has said they don't intend to sign up to a treaty that will surrender their, their sovereignty. But I think that the bigger come issue, on, the, the government also turned around and said things like there'll be no um, vaccine passports. There was vaccine passports. There'll be no mandatory vaccinations. There were then mandatory vaccinations when it came to employment. The government said an awful lot of things, and then very quickly backtracked as the scenario has gone on. So, and that's coming through thick and fast on the email as well. People are saying, "Great, you're saying Sajid Javid saying that this not that this is not going to happen." But they've got quite a strong track record of saying something's not going to happen and then it happening. Absolutely. And I think the, 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 the big issue here, if I can, if I can say, um, is something that's actually already happening at the international level, which is that, that really this is the, the big concern is that this is a push to, to, to lock in lockdowns, if you like, to make, to make lockdowns, uh, mandatory masking, closure of schools, all these things that we've got, that we've got used to, rushing, rushing through uh, vaccines, that, that kind of thing. The, the, the push is to make these things uh, permanent and to make, that, to make them the standard normal response mm. and and the big and and the, and the fact is that 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 the, the World Health Organization has said, says it's already doing that, and it says that it's and it's changed. And and this is this is this is one of the big things that people haven't appreciated is that the World Health Organization says it's already changed its definition of what prepare, pandemic preparedness is all about, and it says that it's now about curbing transmission of of a pandemic virus. Now that now we've got used to that over the last two years that, that we think oh that's what we should be trying to do, but we don't realise that that is a radical and major change to how we think we should respond. We had a plan. We, people say that we don't, didn't have a plan in March, in February, March 2020, but we had a, pre, a pandemic preparedness plan that we'd made in 2011 based on World Health Organization advice. It was good advice at the time. And the government was clear that we will not close borders, we will not stop mass gatherings in any pandemic, and that, the, and that masks are not effective and we will not be imposing masks. It said all these things, and we had a plan. The problem wasn't that we didn't have a plan. The problem wasn't that we, that we didn't follow World Health Organization advice. It's that that it's that we just threw it out the window, along with the World Health Organization throwing it out the window. As soon as China locked down, suddenly the World Health Organization was going around the world telling people that this was the way to respond to pandemics. This was a completely new, novel and extreme, extreme idea. And the problem we've got now is that the World Health Organization has already, and we can see that in one of the recommendations they're putting to the World Health Assembly uh, next week, that they've changed the aim of pandemic preparedness. They say it's to curb transmission, and they say that, and that that's going to be the benchmark, that's what they are going to be telling states and what states should be putting into their, their plans going forward. And they said that work is already underway. They don't need a new treaty. They don't even need to amend an existing treaty. They say they're already doing that. And this is the, this, to, to, my, to my mind, this is the big issue that people are, uh, are not appreciating because we're getting distracted, I think, by the, um, by the, by the threat to democracy from, uh, from, from handing over sovereignty and, and all of that, and not realising that the shift is going on ideologically in, 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 this, in what is the aim of in, in, in responding to a pandemic, and that and that will lock in lockdowns um, into into our plans and our preparation, and that's what we really have to stop. Yes, mm. and I think the point is not about whether we're capitulating as national governments to the World Health Organization or whether it's about uh, you know them telling us what to do. Or I think it's uh, as you highlighted, it's about introducing standard procedures and standardization of coordination, including in transport, in distribution, involving the best technocrats around. It's, it's about a practical solution to a huge uh, global problem. Um, I was going to move on, but very briefly, because Daniel's shaking his head. Daniel, what's the matter? I think the problem is uh, it isn't a practical solution. Underlying it all are big ideological questions about how you deal with uh, people in a, in a democracy. And 
And if you want the sort of solution they've got in Shanghai now, where people are locked up, then, then that is something that the World Health Organization is encouraging you to do. I mean, prepare, preparedness, preparing to stop transmission, for example, a good example of that would be if we all now, ahead of the next pandemic, start building fences around housing estates <laughs> with big gates in them, just like you have in China, so that we're prepared to stop transmission by locking people inside their estates and passing food through a hole in the wall. Because yeah. that's what happens in China. That's the sort of thing we could be doing to prepare for it if we followed that. That's not the right, right approach at all. We have to be firm in saying lockdowns didn't work. Lockdowns are not the answer. Yes. The answer lies in developing therapeutic solutions. Yeah, but they had to be tried and tested before we could draw the conclusion that they didn't work out. And we're still well, trying to assess whether they worked out or not. But the, the worry with, uh, my, my big worry with the, for the... My big worry with, the, um, with, what's, with what's being proposed now is that they want to set up a global uh, health council of heads of state. And the problem with this is they seem to be wanting to put the World Health Organization and the world on a permanent emergency splitting. Well, you've just uh, tapped on something there. David on Twitter says, Michelle, I'm personally waiting for the mainstream media to go into overdrive regarding monkeypox. Well, unfortunately, David, something tells me you're not going to have that long to wait. Um, anyway, Dr. Will Jones, thank you very much for your time, your insight there. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubry, keeping me company tonight. Former advisor to Boris Johnson and now Conservative Life Pay, Lord Moylan, journalist and broadcaster Nabila Randami. Randani, I know your name, I don't know why I mixed it up then. And Alistair Donald, who's Associate Director at the Academy of Ideas. Lots of response coming in, I can tell you, about the World Health Organization. A common theme here is that many people seem to have lost trust in various organisations throughout COVID. Are you one of them? Get in touch, let me know. GBviews at gbnews.uk. Many of you uh, are saying, this sounds to me like something to be suspicious of. Other people saying it sounds like a sensible idea. Why would you not have a coordinated response to a pandemic as opposed to individual countries doing whatever on earth they want to do? Keep your thoughts coming in. Let me know what you're thinking about that topic tonight. But let's move on now. Right, Paris Saint-Germain, footballer Idris Gay decided to sit out on a match rather than wear a shirt that had the numbers picked out on the back in a rainbow design. The rainbow was to support basically the International Day Against Homophobia, Transphobia and Biphobia. But Idrissa is a practicing Muslim and comes from Senegal, where the majority there believe that homosexuality is unacceptable. Now, to be clear, Idrissa has not spoken on homosexuality at all, but he's, he's facing calls for punishment because he didn't want to wear the shirt. It got me thinking, by the way, because, I mean, I'll read out some of the response and reaction to this, and I think it's a little bit intense. And we talk, don't we, all the time about diversity. We'll say that we've got a diverse country. Uh, we celebrate diversity. It's something to welcome and champion. But what about diversity of thought? And when we have these campaigns, I mean, we have all different campaigns these days, don't we? We're talking about Black Lives Matter, for example, uh, a couple of days ago on this show. Uh, this, this time we're talking about this particular campaign, rainbow laces you have in football, don't you? Rainbow this, rainbow that. Should you be allowed to sit it out? And if you do sit it out, does that mean that you are racist, homophobic, whatever it is? Or does it mean that you just... Want to maybe, I don't know, keep your views to yourself or perhaps not be seen to be championing this or championing that. Nabila, where do you stand on all of this? 
Well, first of all, you know, uh, as you mentioned, Idrissa is a football player. And mm. we often, you know, sport is by definition about conformity. It's about sticking to rules, working as a team. And it's about trying the best to be the best as you can in a clearly defined discipline. But there's no reason why this conformity should extend beyond the actual sport not least of all, uh, to, to politics and the general rule of sport. It has nothing to do with politics. So uh, I'm a bit baffled as to why, you know, we should expect sportsmen to express political views at any opportunity uh, unless, you know, we are caught in an extreme situation and, and so we're seeing more and more sports people getting involved in anti-apartheid movement, for example, showing opposition to a war. I mean, all that is fine, uh, but I think we now bizarrely... Hang on, why is all that fine? And then you're saying this isn't fine. What's the difference? Where's your line? No, I'm saying it's up to the individual to right. make up their mind whether they want to uh, show support for a cause or indeed uh, sit on it. You know, uh, the uh, sportsmen are not politicians. They're not public political figures and they shouldn't be judged as such. And, you know, I'm all for judging people on how they behave within the law. And if the laws are broken, for example, then should people should be castigated or indeed punished. Uh, but this, in this case, it, this isn't, it hasn't happened. He hasn't broken any law. Uh, in, in fact, and his religion has nothing to do with the problem, I would, I would contend. Um, I think you don't think his religion, the fact that in his religion, homosexuality isn't accepted, you don't think that that played a part in the fact that he didn't want to wear that rainbow shirt? Well, you know, I, I don't want to uh, want to defend or indeed criticise his views because I don't think a footballer is in any way a public political figure. But you see in the Premier League, for example, there are lots of uh, Muslim footballers, sub superstar footballers in the game nowadays. More, most of them have very liberal views and it, it's a good thing. It doesn't matter uh, what religion you are, or indeed, if you don't have a religion, uh, there will always be extreme social views around. But I think, again, I go back to the boundary of the law. For example, we saw that the Christian hotel owners uh, uh, prevented homosexuals from um, staying in their hotels, and they were rightly punished by the law. This is not a case of breaking the law. Right, Alistair, I want to bring you in. Before I do, I just want to read, uh, I've got a clip, I think I'll put it on the uh, screen as well. So the French Football Federation, have written a letter, ladies and gentlemen, to the player, uh, saying a variety of different things, by the way. Um, uh, it starts off, I'm showing you a portion of it on the screen. I'm just going to read you the start of it before I get to the screen bit. There are two possibilities. This is to the footballer. Either these allegations are unfounded, and we therefore invite you to speak out without delay to silence these rumours. For example, we invite you to accompany your message by a photo of yourself wearing the said shirt. Or the rumours are true, and in this case, we invite you to realise the impact of your act and the grave error committed. The fight against discrimination towards different minorities, whoever they might be, is a vital fight for all our times, whether it's skin colour, religion, sexual orientation or any other difference. All discrimination is based on the same principle, which is the rejection of the other because they are different from the majority. See, I read that, Alistair. If someone wrote me a letter like that saying, you know, you better come out and defend yourself and while you're at it, you can hold up your shirt and give me a picture. Well, I can't tell you what I'd say to them because it's tea time. Where do you stand on it? <laughs> well, it is worth making the point that this story has come out in the same week 
as the young Blackpool footballer Jack Daniels has come out as gay mm -hmm. and received widespread praise for his move. Even uh, the Liverpool manager Jurgen Klopp said in the aftermath of the main, uh, one of the main events of uh, British football, the FA Cup final the other week, that he congratulated him. And uh, there's been a lot of uh, positive sentiment about that. So it, it, uh, there might not be many young gay footballers that are out, as it were, but there's certainly been a positive sentiment to them to, to this guy coming out. So that, given that context, it's it's even more, you know it's interesting uh, that there's been such a, a, a fuss over this story. I, I, I personally uh, I, I don't agree with uh, what Gouet says um, and, and and the people that support him. But I think it's been a long-standing principle in all walks of life that you have the freedom to uh, form your own beliefs and you should have the capacity to express those beliefs. And it seems to me that that's been stripped away in the context of football and many other sports just now because sport has become the main arena uh, for the expression of these diversity policies. The, 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 the capacity of people to express what they believe has been uh, very much cut back. And it's interesting that when he did it a year ago, uh, and he didn't announce. He hasn't announced at this time. No, it's no. Worth remembering, but he he said he was ill a year ago. Now it's a pretty terrible situation if you've got to feign illness in order to take the action that you want because you cannot openly express what you believe in. So I I, I think this is a real problem. It's part of a, a shift towards a society that is compelling people uh, to say what others think they should say rather than have the freedom to express their own beliefs. And that's the, 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 the route down mm -hmm. uh, not a good road. Daniel Moylan, your thoughts? Well, first of all, just to say we don't have a slave economy and if someone doesn't want to work, they uh, can't be made to work. Of course, they might have their pay docked for not turning up to work. That's what we'd all expect, but these are his choices. The second thing is, what really interests me about this, and Alistair was getting onto this, is mm -hmm. how football in particular, but other sports too, but particularly football, has become a means of social control. So that the, the, the people who value this idea of nudge, you know, that you can nudge people into behaving in the way you want them to, um, uh, must be thrilled to have access now, to have almost complete control over what happens on the football field. Not the match itself. Mm. The match itself's another matter. But all the paraphernalia, all the surrounding stuff is now being aggressively used in order to get the crowds in the stadium and the wider audience in the country and even globally to behave in certain ways, to adopt certain views. And who is behind all of this? Uh, who is exercising this control? How is it decided? All of those questions, I think, are really much more interesting than whether one particular player turns up because it's having an immense impact on people and what they feel they can say and do. And, and dare I say, I mean, Idris Agway has clearly very strong views about homosexuality. He's clearly very conservative. But we only know that because he's been forced to express a, a political view, basically, by his club. And he shouldn't have been put in that position in the first place. And I agree with Alistair. I think the issue here is not what your views on a certain subject is, but whether you should be forced uh, in, to take position in the public domain. Many people in life decide to have a conciliatory and indeed diplomatic approach to a lot of things. That's why we have the expression, not discuss religion or indeed politics. And I would contend that that should apply to sportsmen. They shouldn't be uh, forced to take political views. They have chosen to play sport, not to go into politics. If they break the law, it's another matter altogether. But I think, you know, I've noticed recently that some footballers have um, 
opposed, uh, for example, taking the knee before uh, uh, games because they, uh, they, they object to the Black Lives Matter uh, organisation. And this follows claims that the BLM organisation is a Marxist one and indeed it's a deeply political one and they don't want particularly to be involved in politics. And I think the main thing here in general, I think sport should be a distraction from all the angst and horror of real life. It shouldn't be a platform to express political views um, as a matter of fact. Yeah, and I don't like this whole kind of, right, today, um, football, we've decided that you better kneel. So you're going to prove to people that you're not racist by kneeling. Right, OK. And then if someone decides they don't want to kneel, then there is people out there, a lot of people, lambasting these people, going, he's racist, he must be racist because he's not kneeling. And then it's kind of like now what you've got to do is now you've got to wear rainbow laces or rainbow things on your back. And if you don't, then you are a homosexual and you better... Is that the word? A homo... No, not homosexual. What's it? Homophobe, thank you. <laughs> if you are a homophobe, and then you've got to come out and prove. I wouldn't accept someone telling me Michelle, you've got to do this to prove this. So, Michelle, you've got to make your Instagram black or, Michelle, you've got to wear this pin badge. I wouldn't accept someone telling me that. I, I, I will kind of choose what I think and what I don't think. I won't be told to demonstrate my thoughts with a particular symbol. I, yeah. You're trying to come back in, well, Alistair. Well, I think what's very striking with both this and with the taking the knee uh, situation that you mentioned is that what started... Uh, uh, years, decades ago, as very, very positive movements for liberation, gay liberation, uh, black people's freedom, has uh, arrived today at, at uh, a situation where, in the name of those movements of progress, we're actually being told to constrain what we say and what we think and how we act. So these movements, somewhere along the way, have gone in a very wrong direction into compelling people what to think, mm. rather than fighting for people's freedom uh, to believe and act as they want. To. Yes, we go back to the issue of conformity that I've raised. Again, uh, Idrissa, like other players, they are paid to be uh, a conformist at their sport. They're not there to have personal view that conform with everybody else's. And what, what I find fascinating, Daniel, is because there's an interesting scenario about to occur. So the World Cup is going to be uh, performed in Qatar. Uh, now, a lot of people are saying that this is wrong because obviously their view in Qatar about um, homosexuality versus the Westerners' view, they're, they're wells apart, they're poles apart. And people are kind of highlighting that and saying, well, you know, there's a culture clash, there's a religious clash. Um, so there will be a certain religion that, for example, says that homosexuality is wrong. Then there will be the Western values, which say actually it's perfectly acceptable whose value set, therefore, takes precedent? Well, because none, I think none, what we do is... None of those values are actually embedded in the rules of association football. Precisely. Why don't they play football according to the rule book? Mm -hmm. uh, they've got a rule book. And keep all of this stuff out of there. Well, you want to put all of this stuff into it. If people want to put all of this stuff into it, then you can have a right row. That's great. Mm. Uh, and then people will boycott, other people won't go. They're perfectly entitled to boycott. As I say, we don't have a slave economy. People don't have to go and play football. They don't have to go and attend matches or pay tickets, pay to buy tickets. Oh. I'm perfectly happy if people at a personal level want to say, I don't want to go, I don't want to be part of that. I don't want to watch it on the television. But the purpose of the whole thing is to play football according to a rule book that is essentially free of those values, which is as... Nabila says, is essentially you conform to the rules and, and, and that's, a, that's your valid way of playing.
Mm. Well, let me know what you think. Uh, Simon says, politics and football is an awful mix. Um, I've got to say, I think lots of people agreeing with you here. Uh, John is, sorry, Joan is saying it's the footballer's right to refuse uh, to wear a shirt. He doesn't, he doesn't have to give any reasons for making his choice. Margaret again says, keep politics and the like out of sport. End of story. Lots of you um, are saying those kind of things. Keith, though, says, do I have the right to believe in the Bible and its teachings anymore. Uh, Carol says, why in this day and age do people have to come out and celebrate it? Surely life has moved on by that. Um, why does everyone, yeah, again, that's coming through. People are saying that they don't understand the need anymore for people to come out and declare their sexuality. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubery. Just a reminder as to who is keeping me company tonight, journalist and broadcaster Nabila Ramdani, Alistair Donald, the Associate Director at the Academy of Ideas and former advisor to Boris Johnson and now Conservative life peer, Lord Moylan. And I got an email in from Suzanne. Michelle, we love you and your show, but we get really excited when you've got Daniel on. We love him. He's so cool. Please, can he be on more often? That's from Suzanne and Paul from That's the Forest so of Dean. Fine. thank you. Yes, little fan club growing here for you, Lord Moylan. Um, you know, you can take them all in for a cup of tea in the House of Lords, show them I around, yeah. couldn't you? Yeah, at, at, at a fan club of two, just about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fan club of two, I'm sure there's plenty. I'm sure there's plenty, but they're all a bit shy to let you know their thoughts. Uh, right, the supermarket Iceland says it's to offer a 10% crisis discount to the over 60s to help them with the cost of living. Other supermarkets such as Tesco and Morrison's have already cut their prices. But celebrity chef Jamie Oliver has come under fire for launching a protest to get supermarkets to drop their buy one get one free promotions with people saying it's stopping a source of cheap food. Just showing you a little protest there um, on the screen. If you're listening, not watching, it's Jamie or Oliver with what looks like a large trifle in his hand. It looks like he's doing bicep curls with it. Oh, it's eaten mess, I've just been told. <laughs> there you go. That shows the level of my sophistication, doesn't it? I look at an eaten mess and think it's a trifle. Uh, anyway, Alistair, where do you set on all this? Well, uh, compared to Jamie Oliver's contribution to this debate, which is to scorn at the idea that cheap food be should be available to anyone, then this Iceland initiative almost seems positive, mm. uh, it has to be said. And, and, and you know, in some ways, uh, the, the recognition that this cost of living crisis is very, very serious and there's not very much been done about it, is now starting to percolate through and it comes through in initiatives like this. Mm. The problem, though, is that something like this is, is obviously so completely inadequate in terms of addressing what is a huge, huge problem. Um, businesses, yes, well, by all means offer discounts, but I think the thing that we really need from businesses is kind of some long-term planning about how it is that they're going to transform their businesses, offer proper jobs to people that need good employment with decent wages and uh, across the board for everyone uh, start to reduce prices of goods because inevitably the response to this has been well if pensioners are getting a discount then why shouldn't single mothers or or whoever else whatever other uh, uh, group wants uh, uh, rightly wants to to have cheaper food why don't they get it as well and I think you can just see the sort of direction that this is headed in is a kind of squabble over who accesses the cheaper food rather than a more positive and much needed debate about how we transform the economy 
economy more broadly. Yeah, but let's uh, not forget, we live in a society, don't we, where we, uh, we can identify as anything that we want these days, apparently. So if you're looking at that story, thinking the over 60s, I wonder how you'd get on if you went to an Iceland and identified as an over 60-year-old and tried to get your discount. I wonder how that would wash in this day and age. Anyway, Daniel, where do you sit on it all? 10% off for the over 60s? Well, I don't think it's very well targeted, as Alistair says, if it's meant to help the poor. There are lots of people over 60 who aren't poor. Um, the fact is that in, 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 we don't need a strategy for this because supermarkets and other businesses are actually very good at trying to adjust their prices to maximise uh, sales. And, and we will see a lot of this. We will see uh, pr some prices of things going up. We will see other goods coming in that substitute for them that might be cheaper. People will shift what they're buying uh, to some extent so that they're not buying uh, a particular type of meat, but a different type of meat, uh, vegetables and so on might be more seasonal and things that come in at different times. And I think this will happen through the ordinary. We don't need a government telling people what to do about this. If they want to give discounts, they want to give um, um, uh, money off, they do that already. You get money off if you go to a certain supermarket and you get a, you get a, a loyalty card and your points build up and so on. They have all sorts of means of trying to encourage people to to buy at their shops, and they're going to be competing to try and do that. So I'm not too worried about that. I'm much more worried, much more worried about the government having got itself into a total mess over its healthy food initiatives, which it says are there to address obesity, but really don't address obesity. All the recent measures, the ones that they're saying they're delaying, and Jamie Oliver's got into a an eaten mess about. Um, all, all hey, those... I see what you did there. I <laughs> oh, see yeah, what you yeah. did there. All, all those measures, even the government has calculated that if they were applied, they would save nationally for each person three calories a day. Now, let me just tell you, Michelle, three calories a day isn't even half a gram of butter. It's the sort of thing you can put in your sandwich without even noticing. So it's not about obesity. It's actually about people trying to make you eat what they call healthy food, which means food like they eat. And frankly, um, I don't think this is the right time to be doing this. And Jamie Oliver should take his eaten mess and gobble it up. Gobble it up. <laughs> uh, Nabila, where do you stand? Well, first of all, on the Iceland initiative, I think it's a fantastic initiative and others should follow suit. Every little helps. Um, the elderly are amongst the most vulnerable members of society and often they have given, you know, a lifetime of service to their communities, indeed to their countries often, and they should get the most financial support uh, possible. And also earning power is the highest among those who are much younger than uh, 60 years old. And Age UK research shows that three quarters of all the people are worried about the, the, the rapidly rising cost of living. So I think it's... Um, uh, it's fit that uh, people, um, all the people, should be honoured and respected and they, um, we should extend as much financial support as possible uh, to them. Um, on the buy one, get one free initiatives, I mean, I went to buy a notebook today from a stationery shop and I was offered straight away a chocolate bar and a bag of crisps. Mm. So... I do see that how it, it encourages... I know the shop you're referring to. <laughs> I won't name it, but that's been quite a long-standing strategy. I, I know exactly where you mean. Uh, Colin says, Michelle, we're over 60, but we won't get Iceland's discounts because my wife has not got a valid passport or a driving licence to, to prove her age. And neither will countless uh, millions of other people, so it's a no-go. Hey, Colin, this is a radical idea. 
Why don't you go do the shopping? He says his wife ain't got the ID. Have you got the ID, Colin? If you have, there you go. You've got a job now from me to you this weekend. Let me know how you get on with it. Uh, right, that's all we've got time for. Time flies, doesn't it, when you're having fun? Uh, Alistair, Nabila, Daniel, thank you very much for your time. Thank you all uh, for all of your comments, all of your insight. Janet says uh, she's going to have to take her passport or ID to the supermarket for the first time in a long time. Uh, right. You have yourselves a fantastic weekend and I will see you same time on Monday. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Co, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time. <laughs>